Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. So as I put in the title, are you high or are you happy? Do you know the difference? And what does keto have to do with it? So this idea that there's a difference between being high and happy is, we're going to go into it on a number of levels, but it definitely has to do with keto because we're going to get into neurotransmitters. We're going to get into... I guess you might call it mental health or cerebral health. So it's a it's a topic that I've been sort of picking away at probably for the last year and a half. We can think of the processed food aspect of this. When we back to the interviews with Joan Iflin, I certainly, it makes me think of uh, in my 16 years of getting people off of processed foods, I wasn't thinking about this at all. I was just thinking, you know, it's artificial food, get it out, let's get the real nutrition. And I left it at that. And there's a whole nother layer here of malevolent deeds done by the food industry. How's that <clears throat> to come out with it? It's just not by coincidence we got here. It's not, we haven't, uh, we've been blocked by legitimate information. We've been blocked by information that no longer has to be made available to the public by uh, the food manufacturing companies and exactly what is in your product. It's a very compromised food labeling law. Having said that, let's push all that away because this is not a political show. It's an informative show. And so my perspective on everything. So why is this keto uh, podcast any different than anybody else's? I hope it provides a different value, but here's what I think that I'm bringing to the forward. One is I'm not, I don't really care whether you do this or not. I'm here in my own path and my wife's path of how we improved our health dramatically. And I go back and question, why is it I did not know that removing carbs will so extraordinarily improve your life on so many different levels? Why was that left out of my naturopathic education and my naturopathic, all my continuing education conferences that you had to fly around the country to go to, to listen to all these experts talk about whatever it is. I'm not begrudging all those things that I did, but it was clearly avoided. It wasn't that it was not mentioned. It was avoided. And why was it avoided? Oh, there's another political issue. Let's push that one aside. But what I'm saying is my process here, this path of this podcast is about saying, what the heck is this doing? And why is it so good? Why has it created so many causes? You could 
hit it at a very simple level and saying it's removing the obstacles to cure. That's one of the seven Hippocratic principles. We consider that one of the seven Hippocratic principles that are now in naturopathic medicine that you had to memorize back when you were in medical school. So removing the obstacles to cure, taking the bad thing. So you would we think of environmental toxins as that way. You remove that toxin and then you have to help the body process what they've been absorbed to. But removing it is a big deal. That's the number one rule. So removing the obstacles to cure, you could look at carbs that way. And depending how far you go, it can be no carbs or little carbs or the rest is up to you. So this is the path that I am on. So that's the vibe, that's the attitude, that's the perception that I'm coming at this with. So now that I sort of have been amassing a pretty large database spreadsheet of all these labs that I do on a variety of people that primarily want to lose weight, that is that they were obese, men now going into women, and then we'll be going into uh, gastrointestinal uh, problems as well. It's it's extraordinary to see the change. However, dealing with the person, not with a concept. So I'm not just going to say, hey, there's this study that did this. There's a study that says that. There's a study this, study that, study this. And it just annoys me to no end when I go to conferences and I hear people sort of regurgitating studies. I want to hear, what is your experience? Please give me, you know, an anonymous table of blood work, of labs, of results that you can talk about. That makes your experience great. If I want to go to a librarian, I'll go to a librarian. If I want to do a Google search, I'll do a Google search. I think it is appropriate to bring in certain studies, but to keep on talking as a third person, I think that's pathological. You have to have your own experience to make your own story, to present your own truth, or to bring your relevant data to the story. Just hearing it, it's like a just have putting on another coat of paint of the exact same color as the guy before or the woman before you presented is like, why waste my time? Please don't. And I kind of wonder what's going through this person's mind. Um, so with that, I like to see my own data. That's the whole path I've been driving on. Is this true? Can I prove it to be true? And I look at these different things. So this aspect, what this has evolved into. So, I mean, I do a long, a big metabolic which is a blood work panel. Some common tests you, that your doctor, your family GP would take on you and others, they probably would have a tough time pronouncing. Um, but not many of those. But it helps me elucidate a situation about the person that's sitting in front of me, the person that's part of our coaching groups. I get to know them deeper and not just give them, well, just drop your carbs, just drop your carbs, increase your fat, you get back to me, measure your ketones as your ketones. You know, those are all good things and they're not bad in themselves. But as I've said, probably at least a hundred times in the past podcast, just dropping your carbs as for a ketogenic diet only is successful for 50% of the people who, who consciously sought out help that they wanted consciously wanted to go on a ketogenic diet. They wanted to know how to do it. They wanted to implement it for better health, weight loss, et cetera, et cetera. You know, cognitive impairment, cognitive health. But for whatever reason, they were not helped. They couldn't implement it. And so the arrogant, condescending way of looking down to the people who didn't get 100% success are, well, you weren't compliant. Ma'am, son, you weren't compliant. What does that mean? I have met some people that 
you know, couldn't punch their way out of a paper bag. And I guess you would call that non-compliance. But basically, I think for that person, they would need better instructions, a little more hand-holding to get their way out of a paper bag. So there is something to be said for that non-compliant portion. So I want to go a little further here. Are you are you high or are you happy? What does that have to do with anything? Well, that has to do with actually two different neurotransmitters. One's dopamine. And I know you've heard me talk about dopamine before and go a little deeper. And the other is serotonin. So we probably all know serotonin now as well. We all have a friend if we're not on an SSRI, serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which is a um, medication, a drug by many different names, by many different companies. And I think it's uh, at least been out the last 30 years. So Selexa, um, anyway, it goes on and on and on. There's at least 10 different names and I've chosen not to be aware of the names anymore, just the concepts. And uh, by the way, all those people that are on the SSRIs for antidepression, that has less than 10% effectiveness. That means 90%. So you would think just that success rate alone would make people ask, huh, wonder why 90%, 90% are not getting any benefit at all. I'm just asking about the 50% that aren't getting any benefit on the ketogenic diet. All right. So we go through the labs and the blood work, and I'm going to skip a lot of that. I'm going to go right into uh, what we call a hormone panel. The hormone panel, and we're not talking about sex hormones or anything else, but that's part of the panel. The part of the panel that I find really interesting is what they call an organic acid test. So we call it an oats test, organic acid test. And what is that? Have I just brought you in the land of esoterica? No, I have not brought you into the land of the unknown and you don't understand it. Listen with me. Listen to me. And so the reason it's called organic has nothing to do with organic fruits and vegetables. It has to do with organic chemistry, right? Anyways, I had to call it something. And so these are tests that are substances that we, we measure and they can come out in the urine. So this is actually a sequential urine test and saliva test too, but the um, oats test is measured in the urine. And if these amounts or levels are high, then it's, it's the precursor for dopamine. It's the precursor for um, a number of neurotransmitters. It's not a long list. It's four or five. And I will get to the actual names of these and how it's appropriate and why I like it. So um, it allows me then, because it's really hard to get in an actual uh, a reading on, does this person have enough dopamine? Are they, you know, and so that's something you want to know because uh, it has a lot to do with addiction, of course. And don't you wish they did this in regular medicine? That is in your, your GP or whatever, certainly in uh, uh, for psychologists. If they're, who's ever dispensing, who's ever prescribing the antidepressants like the SSRIs and the tricyclic RIs and so on, wouldn't it be nice if they actually knew how much serotonin was there in the first place and how much dopamine was there in the first place? Um, so it's not exactly neither here nor there, but that would be a logical offshoot of this. But Nobody does that because the money's not there. Oh, well, or it hasn't been discovered yet or something like that. So back to me working with one-on-one or groups of four and five and six and sometimes 15, that the reason part of me working with people is I have to get what is called the buy-in. I have to convince this person that there's an amount of work that they have to do 
to get the outcomes that they want. Pretty straightforward. That's what every doctor does. So I don't think taking a medication would be considered work, but that's more or less what allopathic or most MDs do. Take this statin because your cholesterol is too high. I hope if you have any MD that's telling you that, they are sadly uneducated. First of all, cholesterol is a worthless uh, lab value to follow in 99.9% of the time. It's in a Nora's LDL. And so if they're telling you to, to not only take a medication to control something that's irrelevant, then they're irrelevant. So, and there's plenty of references to the material uh, to get behind that. And I've talked about that before. So apart from the medications, to check things out ahead of time. Uh, in fact, don't you wish that if somebody was a, who's ever prescribing the antidepressants, so let's say it's the psychiatrist. So if the psychiatrist had the availabilities as the GPs do, you know, GPs look at your lipid profile and they go, oh, your, your, your cholesterol is elevated, it means you're out of range, it's greater than 200. You do realize that what I'm just telling you is kind of irrelevant, but it's the example that I'm using. So, but they at least look and say, oh, wow, you're high. I should drop that down. Well, a psychiatrist doesn't go, oh, wow, your dopamine is low. I should help you get more. Oh, wow, your serotonin is low. I should help you get more. They just go, you're depressed. I'll help you get more. Well, that's helping an addiction get worse. I mean, first of all, I think that should be malpractice um, without measuring ahead of time. And no, it's not as easy to measure as I just said, uh, the dopamine and serotonin are their neurotransmitters. But there's other ways of looking at this will give you an idea. And this is one of those ideas. Organic, organic acid tests, oats tests for this. So if they're high, it means the thing that they would have turned into, dopamine, is probably low. There's a backup. There's a block. Something is keeping it from being converted to dopamine, serotonin, and other neurotransmitters. Pretty interesting. So, okay. So I, I look that deeply to understand the person. So let's say I get to a person who has the test that shows their dopamine is low. Well, what would that mean? If their dopamine is low, it means they probably had a behavior or substance abuse of some something that gave them sustained elevated dopamine levels. Okay. So it had, they were forcing themselves by a substance, you know, it could be a drug, it could be coffee in part. It could be coffee and fat. And there's a lot of things in food. That's what processed food's about. It takes the food route to increase your dopamine. Drugs take the, you know, a little more sophisticated, let's get to the neurotransmitter or the receptor and stimulate that to get more dopamine. Okay. But, um, so I'm looking at this person that we assess that has, among other things, low dopamine. They got there because they had a history of elevated dopamine because they were taking that thing consistently. And guess what? Their brain cells, neurons go, I, I, I can't sustain these high levels. I am going to downregulate the openings for dopamine, right? So think of it this way. I've been thinking of, a, of an analogy. Think of your, you have a swimming pool in your backyard. Good for you. And now you're going to fill it up with water because summer's approaching and you can put in 10 different hoses, right? And we're going to say, for the time being, everything's the same diameter and it's going at the same rate of speed. Rule out all those little um, extraneous things that you can follow. So you have 10 hoses going into the pool to fill it up and it's filling it up pretty quickly. So that rate of filling is pretty sustained, right? 
Well, that's the way it is for neurons. It has 10 hoses feeding into a neuron, stimulating it, you know, a lot, constantly. Well, it, the, the body overrides it, has a plan B. It's not as mechanical as you think, and it's not as mechanical as we like to think in science as well, certainly not in medicine. And so the body goes, this is too much. I can get stimulated a little bit now, a little bit then, but no, long-term, constant, high, value, high volume stimulation of dopamine, I'm going to pull a hose out of the pool. I'm going to pull two hoses out of the pool. And gradually, I, I pull myself down to just one hose is filling up the pool. Well, clearly, that pool is not going to fill very fast. But what the body's trying to do is to compensate. And so if this person now, so in other words, it can take a lot of, it can take a lot of dopamine stimulation, but it cannot take a sustained high level of dopamine stimulation. And you can say that about serotonin and a few other things too, but dopamine is pretty front and center. And um, both behaviors like gambling, sex, thinking about it, shopping, these are addictions because it does raise dopamine in the brain. So those are addictions. And when those behaviors are not sustained, you don't sustain that level of dopamine all the time, what happens? Well, you get the down regulation of receptors, which is the pulling the hoses from the pool. And then suddenly you're going, I don't feel, I don't feel as much fun anymore. I don't feel as dopamine rich. I don't feel as, as high. I don't have that sense of reward, of enjoyment, of ephemeral sort of invincibility as I did a little while ago. And so consequently, there's two routes to go. One route is I need more. I need more. So now I even go for more, whatever that is. If it's 10 times as much shopping, even more sex or more of that medication of the opiates or the methamphetamines or the um, menephalin, as we heard, we heard last week or a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about that. Okay, that's one way to go. And that's how addicts generally go. And so the other way to go is like saying, maybe I actually have had too much of this stuff and I should back myself down. Think of coffee. I do like coffee a lot and that's probably my addiction. Um, and sometimes I do go without coffee for a period of time, but I will go through a withdrawal. So it, 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 symptoms of a withdrawal is your whole body's involved with it. You know, you'll get the headache. Yes. You may even get joint pain. You may even start sweating. So that's withdrawal. So you get a, a systemic symptoms of withdrawal. So if you're coming off an opiate, you go through your whole body. You get basically very similar things, more GI-centered aspects. You know, you, it, but so there's that cold turkey, we would call it. That's the withdrawal. And they all have these withdrawals. So um, it's often said that neurons like to be stimulated, but they don't like to be deluged. You know, so periodic stimulation, that's how it works. You know, you, you release the uh, dopamine, comes and releases, you know, in spurts to stimulate the various nerves around it when an activity has generated that or a substance. So you need to back down. And so that's why these things that we've talked, I believe I talked about this a couple of podcasts ago of this concept called dopamine fasting. It's basically an idea started on the West Coast, I think Silicon Valley, doesn't everything start there for the most part. But the concept is actually pretty rich, is to Walk away from all these things that are stimulating you. Leave your phone behind. Um, separate yourself from your... Uh, it's kind of put yourself in isolation. 
you know, walk in nature, don't talk to anybody. Uh, if you're going to communicate, you know, just write things down. So you don't want to, uh, totally lock yourself off, but, you know, give up the things that would be with I me. Mean, that would be no coffee. That would be tough. Uh, and you'd separate. So what are you doing there is what you're doing is you're now allowing, allowing a reset. You're, you're allowing yourself to go through that withdrawal. And so when you come back after could be a couple of days or so, um, is that you're now more sensitive to those things that you're having. So for me, instead of four cups of coffee a day, one might be fine. For others, if it's relative to drugs, they're going to find out that they don't need as much to create that good feeling. But they're then back in the game of, I'll need more, more, more. Um, so same with activity. So a dopamine fast, that is to go without the things that are stimulating dopamine in your life for a period of time allows your self to calm down. And what that really allows is a kind of consciousness to come in. Okay. Consciousness to come in of, wow, do I really need this stuff? Do I really need five cups of coffee a day? Do I really need this um, nootropics or these smart drugs to make my life work? So in that list of things, and, and by the way, the, the definition of addiction is something that that has um, tolerance. So tolerance is what I just described to you. You get to the point in which you really, it's really hard to have more to sustain the same feeling because they've you've downregulated the receptors so much. You've pulled out so many hoses from the pool that, you know, it, it doesn't, it's, it's just not it's not going to give you the feeling anymore uh, or very little. And so that's tolerance. Uh, it used to just be tolerance and then withdrawal. And withdrawal is pretty obvious. When you stop having that, you go through a systemic sort of reaction. You might even get a cold. You know, your immune system will probably plummet. You'll feel achy joints, headaches, sweats, uh, maybe even nausea. So it's it's a big deal to go through withdrawal. So but the definition has now changed to tolerance to dependence. That is, people needed to have X just to be normal. So you can put sugar in there. You can put carbohydrates in there. You can put in a, a lot of things just to be normal, not happy, not like, oh, wow, I just had a, a great experience. No, we're not talking about the great experience. Those opportunities have left. You've been, you're, you're just now getting by in a day to day. So that's dependence. So three aspects, um, tolerance, dependence, and withdrawal. So carbs fit in there. And why this has to do with a ketogenic diet, you know, a ketogenic diet is basically anti-carb, right? We're good with that. As so you start taking the carbs away, that those addictive responses tend to let go. Certainly after three days, if you're the person who needed to have a croissant or a donut or something so you know, glutamine and sugar and fat rich, you know, all, all together, the carbs and the fats together, uh, it's going to take you probably three days to get over that knee jerk reaction of got to go stop by the coffee shop to pick that thing up. And then that fades. And then, you know, you gradually become fat adapted, meaning on ketones. Um, but that takes a process. And so really what's re being reset during all this time are your, are your neurotransmitters as well. We used to speak about this only in terms of metabolic terms, which was your, you know, the insulin, the glucose, 
um, the changing over your mitochondria. And that's fine, and that's important. But neurologically, it has a lot to do with neurotransmitters. So as you dopamine fast, or get back to that accepted level of a a non-addicted brain, then what you're going to find besides that kind of um, consciousness sort of returning to you is that you will then start to produce more of a thing called GABA. And so GABA, which is gamma amino benzoic acid, is, is basically your meditative neurotransmitter. It then helps your dopamine to come up. You're never really going to get high on this. You can't get a ketogenic high, right? But it tends to bring you back to a normal level very quickly. And so you're no longer feeling deficient. So when I see these labs of these people that are dopamine deficient or they're epinephrine deficient or norepinephrine deficient or let's say, actually look at this and... So we look at things called uh, methylmalonic acid. That's a precursor of B12, but that's also a organic acid. We look at um, xanthurionate and keyurinate. Those are both precursors for B6. We also see a pyroglutamate, which is a precursor for glutathione. And we have precursor of dopamine is called homovanillate, or HVA. Um, precursor for norepinephrine and epinephrine are called uh, villamandolate, and uh, melatonin is also in, in the oats test. And so if they're high, then that generally means that they're not being converted. And also very low deficiencies can convey the same. So we check these things out and you can go to a much broader, but I just leave it at this because those who come in are in the program and I find that this is all in the before they start the program testing, right? So this is a how they came to me, the before picture. So the, the poor, before picture shows that they're dopamine low. It means someplace in their lifestyle, they are an addict. And it's probably way more than coffee, by the way. It's probably, the obvious thing is, it's probably very high carb, uh, high stimulant. And, and once you're, so let's say the only thing bad in your life you were doing was carbs, sugars into the carbs range. Well, we know that that's going to be diabetes and prediabetes and all the other things. But if there was just one thing, that drives, you've already teased your dopamine into being high. So it wants to go find another high and then another high. So you have created a predisposition in yourself by starting with one addictive substance and overdoing it that now it wants other things. It's going to recognize the next thing thing that's going to give you a dopamine high. It's like, wow, I want another one. That was cool. Um, And that's how you get yourself into trouble. The other thing about this is there, as you get more and more into the dopamine high aspect of all these things, is that you end up disconnecting the front of your brain, so called the frontal cortex or the neocortex or the prefrontal cortex. That's where they say, you know, you have executive, where your executive functions lie. Executive functions are one in which you can think over your actions. Maybe this isn't the best way to do this thing. Maybe I should go left and then right. Maybe I should just go take a nap, you know, or whatever that is. Maybe I shouldn't have that another drink of wine or alcohol. That's your frontal. That means there's a degree of reflection. So what emphasizes that? What what reconnects you with that? Uh, That's the opposite of your limbic system. Your limbic system is a knee-jerk reaction. I want that thing. I'm going to go get that thing. And I have that thing. I want, I'm going to, I get it. 
So that's your limbic system. And that is the opposite. And that's what they're trying to trigger. So when you do the preservatives you find in your processed foods, the high salt, the high fat content, the high sugar content, all that leads you to that dopamine high disconnect with frontal cortex. I just want more. How many people have just had one or two potato chips? Or how many people have just had now in the keto world, one or two chicharrones uh, or pork, pork rinds? Depending how they're made, they could be equally addicting, even though they're quote unquote better for you. They're a fat as opposed to all that other stuff. I'm still questioning chicharrones, pork rinds. It depends how they're cooked, what's on them and so on. So now you get that. You know, Once you light up with one addictive substance, your brain goes, looks for other addictive substances and you become kind of an addict across the board. But here's what happens after I didn't, I left this part out. It's after you have a sustained exposure to elevated dopamine. So it's, they're stimulating, stimulating all these other neurons. Your neurons will start to die. That is, it doesn't take over sustained hyperstimulation. It can do stimulation periodically, recover, stimulation periodically, recover, not stimulation, 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 stimulation. It then starts to downgrade the receptors, as I mentioned, and after that, it will start to die. So part of addiction is actually neuronal death. Neurons will die and they don't come back. So the reason it's hard to treat addicts, severe addicts, is they've had nerve cell die off. So they're not coming back. So you can't play with a complete deck, so to say, anymore. You now have to be much more understanding and the rules have to be much more enforced or stricter to have a cleaner thinking mind. So you can spot these people. So if when you, and here's what's happened. There's another way of expressing it. Maybe this will work better for you. For those who know what an addictive personality is, that is they have an alcohol, a friend who's an alcoholic, uh, been an alcoholic 30 years, and now he's been in AA for a year or two. The way they talk is still rather superficial. They can't get too deep on things. They're not a reflective person. They're there to tell you about their horrific story about being an alcoholic, um, but there's not a lot of meditative quality reflective. It's like, ah, this is my, you know, and they, they can go on and on and tell their story. It's all about them. And, and they're going to help somebody else get off the juice, which is good. I mean, that has to be done. What I'm saying is there's, you can spot the nerve damage in the way they communicate. It's not real deep thinking. It's healthier thinking than they had before. And that's what I reference as kind of a nerve cell I was about to say die off, but it's not necessarily a die, die off. It's progressive nerve cell damage. And it, some of that will come back in different ways due to the plasticity of the brain, but that really has to be supported uh, and acknowledged both behaviorally and with a healthy diet as well. So I hope you're following that. So this is a big deal. In one way, it's just a little thing. I'm meeting more of what I like. What's wrong with that? It's the road to addiction. So the road to addiction is also the road of thinking less about what you're doing. So that means a separation of your frontal cortex, prefrontal cortex. And that's why when I used to, for a half year as downtown Seattle, we had to go to, we were part of the, what we call a drug court. We would come in at four o'clock in the morning to, uh, there was 10 o'clock and we would do ear acupuncture and there's five points. So five point protocol that was put in to your ear, uh, that was known to, elevate dopamine. So think of the population we were dealing with. We were dealing with dopamine deficient people, but they're all drug addicts. They've been caught. They've now been mandated to go through their drug program, which means they're getting a little methadone, which is also a, a less worse 
drug than what they were taking, and they were doing this. And so if we can help them sustain with a, a moderate amount of dopamine and therefore, you know, not be desperate and wanting the next, I gotta, gotta, gotta go get some more, well, we can help them think about what they're doing and then help them to make better choices. And the interesting thing in that context, uh, you had half the room was mandated to be there. They had to go through their drug court or they're gonna go to jail. So of course they would take that and they could live at home and come in you know, five days a week for however long they had to do that. It was long. But we also had the people who came in paid out of pocket and a number, number of them were attorneys. So they were admitting indirectly that they were drug addicts, but they wanted to get off it because that was their world. Or maybe they had other, maybe there were trial lawyers that were hyped up always and their addiction was, you know, getting in there and fighting with people. So they wanted to change. So anyway, that was a treatment still focused on dopamine through the ears because the vagus nerve and, you know, that's all pretty interesting. And it helped them to not feel totally deficient in those moments and to go through. Pretty neat. Okay, so we look at these organic acid tests. I get an understanding of these people who come in and I have to explain it to them. And I also look at their metabolic panel and I look at their, oh yeah, hormone panel, I said that, and their intracellular. So we start lining these things up and they come in with a greater buy-in. You know, there's some things that we can do together. Some of these things you can supplement while they're deficient and bring them up so they'll feel better sooner or not as bad longer. <laughs> And then when we get to the genome panel, it can be a massive amount of information, but I'm going to pivot to that for a second here because it really is pretty interesting. Um, I don't know if you know about this or not. I know I've mentioned this a few times, but back around 2000 and late 1990s, it was a an example to point to in terms of a genetic difference in being able to process a high-carb diet. So they would use, it was a tribe of Native Americans, so indigenous people or aboriginal people, if you want to use that word. It was on the Mexican border in Arizona and I believe in New Mexico as well. And they were the, the Pima Indians. So the American part of that tribe or that geographic area, um, they had all access to fast foods and so on and so forth. Whereas the other side, and that's side of the wall that's being put up there now, um, they were still poor and indigenous people. Their diet had not changed much. And, you know, they still had to eat what they ate before and probably even less so given how the world has changed. But the point was one side had all this um, high carb food that was not nutritious, certainly part of it. And they were genetically similar and had two different reactions based on two different exposures to diet. Well, the highest rate of obesity and diabetes in the United States is those, are those people, the Pima Indians. And we're speaking continental United States. And so are the Pima Indians and saying, well, why is that? And yet their cousins and brethren on the other side of the wall did not have that. So it's obviously a mismatch from diet to the people. But what's come further now in the world of looking at one's genomes, which you couldn't really do 20 years ago conveniently and have a public discussion about it, is that we find the indigenous people and now across the board, Latinos, you know, we'll get into what Latino means versus Hispanic in a second. But Latinos as well, who acquired these genes, that these are genes about storage. So if you think about if you grew up in a many, many, many subsequent generations, I should say uh, previous generations that lived in the desert environment, 
Well, they would be, their, their metabolism, is, metabolism would adjust to storing as much calories as possible, as quickly as possible. So when there isn't food, that they at least have some body fat. So they are very much about you eat X and 90% of it goes into storage. Whereas if you come to an environment, Europeans primarily, where that exactly was not, it was not the situation that they eat X and a lot of that is burned calories right there. So what you have is for the same diet, these indigenous people get fat, get obese, become diabetic, uh, have high glucose levels very quickly. Isn't that interesting? So they now have it down to a couple of genes. And so when they, the global statement now is Latinos. And now I would say, think about in parentheses, who they've now crossbred with, right? Latinos are from Latin America. That's all of South America. That's Central America. That's Latino. And that does include Brazil, by the way, even though that's Portuguese. So it's the mixture of, so whether you're from Dominican Republic or whether you're from Mexico, whether you're from Guatemala, um, it's the mixing of your genes. And we now know all these countries, there's a big spread of how close are you to the, the original Caribbean people or the Guatemalans or the Aztecs or the Incas, you know, there's that. They still exist in their purity of their genes, but there are also many, many uh, cross marriages or and and so we, it's now been a mix into the population in general. So isn't that interesting? So that's that's the understanding. Also, we find that situation also with the Pacific Islanders because they have the same thing, that they grew up in an environment of, of food poor and to store as much as possible. And given the processed food, the bogus processed food that enters into their culture, they quickly get fat, quickly get obese, quickly get um, insulin resistant, and diabetic. So we got genes, we looked at uh, organic acid tests, we looked at addiction of you need withdrawal, dependence, no, sorry, you need tolerance, dependence, and withdrawal. And so the ketogenic diet has a lot to do with this, just on this neurotransmitter side of things. It can bring up some normal levels. It's a, it's a contribution. And when you stay on the ketogenic diet, your GABA stays. You know, your GABA is not like dopamine that it's going to pound away at all these other nerve cells until they eventually start dying off. No, it's not that. It's the gentle, reflective, it's the prayerful uh, neurotransmitters. So when you pray, your GABA is coming up. When you're meditating, your GABA is coming up. And there's other activities you can do depending on who you are and what you like to do that just sort of that re repetitive you can even say for those who'd like to do long distance running or long distance swimming, that they're in their own world, their GABA is coming up. So that repetitive GABA producing activity is helpful. Having low carbs or no carbs and having a ketones, ketones go to GABA. We know that that's not a mystery anymore. That also sets you off in that direction. So really interesting. So therefore that means you're now reconnecting your frontal cortex to your limbic system. So as much as you might want to get jazzed up to go get some more potato chips, you now have a little more of a connection by saying, you know, I don't know if that serves me that well. And I think I'm going to push that bag away, or I'm just going to put it out of sight, or I'm not going to buy them anymore, whatever that means, or whatever that substance is, is for you. So that was a bit of a whirlwind tour. So I, I started with, are you happy or are you high? Happiness is something that's a much, it's, 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 kind of an ambiguous term, but basically is about a 
long-term word. You know, a friend says, are you happy? It's not like, he's not asking, are you high? Do you have a good life? Do you have friends? Are you doing satisfactory, meaningful work in your life? Do you like your family? This is what happiness is really about in its little particles. And so happiness is a long-term thing. It has to do with deferred gratification big time. You go through school, certainly through medicine, right? You go through college and then med school and then all these other extra courses or whatever it is. Um, it takes a long time before you finally can get to uh, generating in income. And boy, don't I know that. So that deferred gratification is the opposite of being high. It's about happiness. So deferred gratification really has to do with about the satisfaction of deferred gratification, of working hard long-term has to do with serotonin primarily and not dopamine, which is, you could say, the quick fixes and which is what I've just been talking about and all those substances. So think about, are you high? Are you dopamine-oriented? Are you happy? Are you long-term focused on some things in your life? And you can reflect on this about family, personal meaning, et cetera, et cetera. How do you feel? You know you can answer that. It's more of a visceral rhetorical question than it is a actual, are you high or are you happy? I hope you consider doing the ketogenic diet. I think it's remarkable. Till next time. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to Dr. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview, or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming, feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might've been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody, any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history and evolution, and epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also, just for people in losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto, and so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of, at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? And so in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results. And we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered. And I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.